Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of Anime Trending. We are back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I am joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and this is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about privilege in anime. I'm not specifically talking about a particular privilege when we are discussing this topic because privilege exists in all kinds of things, you know, aside from our usual racism and sexism, you know, sort of situation. We also have privilege in regards to talents, privilege in regards to intelligence, privilege in regards to the subjects you study. You know, something that we tend to see uh, people talk about is how those who major and go to work in science-related fields tend to get a lot more respected than people who go into non-science-related fields, such as social work or, you know, being a teacher or um, or English majors, you know. So there's all sorts of privilege, and anime absolutely does portray that in their stories. So today we're going to talk about anime that we think does a good portrayal of some form of privilege in their world and in their plotline. So with that being said, Agnes, you are the one kicking us off this week, I believe. So go ahead and introduce to us which anime uh, in regards to privilege do you want to touch upon and why did you choose those? For sure, yeah. Privileges comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes in animes. There are both good and bad portrayals of it. Um, but for today's topic, I'm going to highlight two of them that kind of deviate a little bit from the usual scope of when we discuss privileges such as money and status. But I think it is kind of relatable, and I want to outline the reasons why. The first one is an example of badly portrayed uh, privilege, which comes actually in the form of a recent anime called In the Land of Leodale with the protagonist Kena. Oh. And mm-hmm. the reason why I say it is not portrayed well as privileged is because it's set up in the whole isekai got transported into a video game and I can't leave scenario where the main character tends to be extraordinarily overpowered without having any kind of consequence that forces them into a corner. Other isekai MMOs, like let's say like Sword Art Online's, uh, loosely isekai MMOs, right? Things like Sword Art Online or like Overlord, there are repercussions to the world that they are transported into and they must deal with the consequences. However, in Leodale, Kena is able to do whatever she wants in her world because she's considered the quote-unquote skill master, a veteran player of the world of Leodale, and probably one of the highest ranked players in accordance to the game mechanics and overall structure. And so when she is transported into the land of Leodale, about 200 years past the original plot line that she was involved in as a player, she finds herself as the most overpowered character compared to everybody else but doesn't really have any kind of world repercussions thrown against her that prevents her from doing whatever she pleases. One of the biggest examples that I can think of is how she treats the people in Leodale, especially the people who used to be close to her or her like adoptables per se. So her adoptables are like young children that she adopted into this foster care system that is in Leodale. Uh, the three foster kids are Skargo, Mai Mai, and the youngest, who is a dwarf. And the three of them He's my favorite. Are, yeah, he's also my favorite, too. And the three of them 
are very interesting characters by their own right. A bit a bit stereotypical, but also very fun in dynamics. But Kana seems to always kind of abuse her power when it comes to her two oldest children, Skarago and Mai Mai, even though they are very important figures in this society that has dramatically changed in 200 years of the plot line. And she treats them with like as if they're little children, but everybody else is telling her, stop doing that. You can't just, you know, kill Scargo or you can't just reprimand my mind with like a storm of uh, thunder and lightning that could kill her because, you know, they've contributed quite a bit as high elves in the time of your absence and many of the other players in Leodale. But it doesn't seem like Kena really understands that as much and she continues to kind of abuse that over a lot of the other characters and i get that it's a gag joke but at the same time it really detracts you from rooting her as a character who's going to redeem herself with that kind of privilege there's also a lot of uh, another concurrent issue that i have with this show is that the characters that she meets in the game that are not skills masters so the majority of the player character cast are characters who are absurdly below level of her and that they're always trying to owe her gratitude or whatnot, even if they are in this, they were in the same guild as her. So it kind of puts it in a weird position where she's kind of like feared above all and very, um, and kind of like seen in awe as well, rather than being somebody who is transported to a new world and absolutely does not have any idea of how the new socio-political hierarchy works. That's just my take on it, so. <laughs> I'm glad. I Well, first of all, I'm really surprised you picked this one because I would have never guessed that this was your pick for this topic. But I'm kind of glad you touched on topics that did bother me when I was watching In the Land of Leodale. Like, I get that her oldest son can be, or quote unquote son, her oldest son can be annoying and her younger son is like, or her younger, or her daughter, her only daughter is kind of cleany and can be, you know, like a little too much. But at the same time, with how she treats them, I'm kind of like, it is abusive if you put it on paper. It's just, it's being portrayed as, it's being portrayed as something light and funny. And in a way but, it is, but at the same time, there's like a sinking feeling of like me feeling uncomfortable about it. And I don't know if it's just because I'm older. So, you know, there's people around me who are parents who have kids who, you know, like I'm very well aware they would never be able to do that. And obviously they should not do that. So it maybe is just an age demographic that's changed on how I view these sort of comedic moments, question mark. I think it's, it is an age demographic, but at the same time, I'm surprised that there's no intervention from, let's say, the king, mm -hmm. who is noticing that there's a lot of rumors going around town of Kana kind of like, quote unquote, abusing her kids, doing a lot of really wild stuff, like throwing people and then keeping deliberate secrets too when she tries to sneak out to do to search out for the Guardian Towers when in reality is is like she should also be abiding by the rules of the land and whatnot, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like she is a rule breaker, but it's not in a very positive rule breaker as a character, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do get what you're saying about that. And I, another thing that I... um certainly it shows her privilege you know as a character just because she's strong is how she was about to kill this other character and it was not in self-defense this time there there were a few circumstances where she did kill these characters because they attacked her and they were trying to kill her but in this case it was no longer self-defense and it was clear that that 
person was genuinely a human that was also alive once or a player per se. And it seemed like isn't totally aware that he's living in the world now. He thinks that this is still a game, you know, sort of situation. Yeah, he's, a thir- he's basically a 13-year-old noob who doesn't know what has changed in Leodale. And yet here she is, she's just like, oh, I can kill you just because I want to. And I'm just like, that's that's a sign of a toxic player in an MMO when you have PvP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that I think, I mean, certainly it is an... Uh, it is a portrayal of privilege, and I bet there's going to be some people who think like, well, this is pretty accurate to real life because people who are more powerful at whatever in their world is deemed powerful, in our case, usually money, but in Leodel's case, it's, you know, actual magic powers, they do kind of get away with these things. They get to be the judge of their own situations and no one else gets to judge them and they get to bend the rules and stuff. So I bet there are going to be some people who feel that way, but it does not help with the writing because she is the protagonist. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, If you're going to write about a character that's going to be redeemable, even though they are privileged, you have to set up a certain starting point where they start to realize the repercussions of their actions or the fact that what they're doing, whatever they decide to do, it negatively impacts the area around them. Sure, you can be a kind of a dick player and not give a crap, but because the situation of Leodel is very different, you know, she should have taken more consideration of that and or the anime adaptation of the original source material should have reflected that. I should also say, like, the Leodale situation of the MMO kind of cracks me up because I feel like it's not really reflective of MMOs either when it comes out with new expansions you know what i mean isabel right (laughs) sometimes it's a little different than what it actually is so it's funny to see differences right (laughs) yeah like i'm gonna i was what i i guess the reason why i chose the show in the first place was because i was inspired after watching today's episode and the only times i'm really invested into leodale is when they talk about the lore of Leodale and like all the cute little items that they pick up like for her her little tip is that she's such a shut-in because she was bedridden for all her life she has invested over two twenty thousand hours and therefore has been gifted two items each item is granted to a player once you've accomplished 10,000 hours worth in the game, right? Like, that's that's like the tidbit that I enjoyed the most. But every time Kana comes on screen, she's like, I'm going to, you know, throw a fireball and show how cool I am to everyone, but also keep it low-key. But also, I have a huge temper that I blow something up and everybody knows it's me. It's very... Uh, it's not very fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very e-girl kind of thing, and I hate it. Oh, I didn't even think about it that way. But I see yeah, what it's you're very, saying. It's very attention hoary, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if this one is not a portrayal of privilege that made you very happy, I'm guessing your second pick is one that you did like in the way it was incorporated into the story. I think so. Yeah. Um. And I, I might be poaching yours, Gracie, but I'm not too certain. Okay. So I picked another character from the same series. Uh, my choice would be Frederica from '86. Oh, uh, a really okay. good example of privilege because so. As we all know, in 86, in the second season, Shin and the rest of his remaining comrades are able to flee across the San Magnolia um, Republic and make it into Gyad Empire former territory. And they're taken in by the um, the Federacy, which has reformed itself from the original Gyad Empire that terrorized all of the nearby countries. 
And while they're they're in this federacy and they think to themselves like, well, we finally quote unquote made it to like the land of democracy or whatever, they're confronted by the fact that the leader of the federacy is actually hiding the uh, the former empress of the Gyan Empire, and Frederica comes off as a very um, what's the word for it? She comes off as a very conspicuous, conspicuous. What's the word? Uh, precocious, I think. Precocious, is the word. Thank you. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember saying it in DMCD, but I completely forgot. Precocious. She comes off as a very precocious child who says, "Like, uh, like I am the great empress. You shall all bow to me and do my bidding and will." But at the same time, she is also very reflective of the fact that her past and her lineage, her bloodline, essentially, is a curse because everybody hates the Gyan Empire. The royals are basically beheaded, like how uh, Louis the Sixteenth and his very wife French Revolution, like and very right? French Revolution, like yeah, very French Revolution, like very um, uh, Russian too, like oh, with how the Russian monarchy yeah. got killed off by sniping squad. Yeah. yeah, with the Romanov family. I mean, I mean, you know, just thinking about it, I know, like without question, they were terrible rulers, but you cannot deny what happened to them was brutal. In the same way, what happened to the French uh, nobility was brutal as well. So yeah, exactly. And so Frederica, although she is privileged, and although she could have used every ounce of her like royal blood, because she can also see into people's minds and memories. And the fact that she is royal blood, she could have sought out asylum if she wanted to, and force a country at hand to hide her for whatever reason that she wanted to live and escape from the people. But instead, Frederica chooses to engage in the battlefield to shed away her privilege and join them as a mascot, of course, because she's too young to fight, but even then still stand with them to show that she is willing to cast away her own past and make changes for the future. Mm-hmm. I, uh, so you did kind of poach my 86 was obviously on my list, but I had three <laughs> And especially since I've already written an article about privilege and discrimination in the actual title, I wasn't sure if I wanted to cover it for the podcast itself. But I think Frederica is a powerful uh, portrayal of privilege for two reasons. One, she very much does as the princess of a royal family. But I think it also hearkens to remember that a lot of times children born into privilege and like are so you know, wrapped up and coddled, they aren't really aware of... No, they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, they don't know. Like, Frederica only really found out, like, why her family was hated so much after they essentially killed everyone, and they were going to kill her if Ernst, you know, didn't, um, you know, didn't give her the sympathy to hide her because he, as an adult, realizes that this is a child who's very much unaware of the world. And so, and I think that's something that people need to remember is, yes, it is, it can be extraordinarily frustrating to see these people who grew up with all the money and all the power in the world and be so unaware. But in a way, if their entire childhood was like that, there was no way that she could have seen or understood why people were so angry at her. And it's kind of traumatizing, you know, like she's so young and suddenly her whole country wants her dead and wants her head on a spike. Like, that's terrifying. So I think so. I think Frederica as, like, that figure of privilege is very nuanced because of that. Because it shows that sometimes people, 
they kind of forget their humanity for others when the other has so much more power. When in reality, it's a little more complicated than that. So yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's the fact that they're placing this burden onto a child, no less, too, and that she can't can no longer grow up in the comfortable privilege and the comfortable happiness of a normal child anymore rather she has to learn and become basically an adult at her age and make decisions that is supposed to be on a politician's shoulder rather than on a child's shoulders yeah exactly so uh isabel i i you've been kind of quiet so i was kind of curious did you watch any of these two or did you have any thoughts of like uh agnes's both picks <laughs> yeah the only thought i have about her uh federica is the fact that you know she's so young she's you know just becoming a teenager basically and being able to interact with everyone else and then also her power as well being able to um, see different things and making judgments off that. I thought that I think that's kind of impressive to me, at least um, being able to do that. Whereas other people her age, you know, they might just run away or things like that. So she has a lot going for her, but and there's a lot of things that she could have learned differently if her situation was different. Uh, so I think, yeah, overall, I think that's a really good choice. I feel like a lot of choices in '86 are also really great as well. I mean, most politicians about maybe three times her age would still run away. Oh, 100%. how many politicians and presidents and leaders have we known run away with tails behind their legs and seek asylum in another country? Versus <laughs> <laughs> Frederica is like, I'm going to have my death sentence here, but I'm going to do what needs to be done right. Mm-hmm. And she's th- she's like, what, 10, 13? 10, I think 11, she's yeah. 11. Yeah, yeah something 11, like that. Yeah. Ugh, yeah, she's really young. Well, you know, thank you for those two picks. I think they are very good picks in our discussion. And since you poached one of mine, I only have two left. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and go to talk about mine and leave Isabel to the wolves in that regard. But I think, <laughs> I think Isabel's picks are going to be different from my crossing my fingers that I don't poach hers in return. So, <laughs> um, but basically, uh, 86 was one of my picks, but... There's a lot going on in 86. I've written an article about it, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse, especially since we just discussed one element of privilege shown in the anime on top of, like, the multitude of other privilege uh, like that is really incorporated into the world and the story. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about another one, which is Assassination Classroom. Assassination Classroom, uh, I think, did a good job of filtering in privilege into the storyline, but not in a way that I think most people were expecting because the um because essentially in assassination classroom, the classes are divided into like the smarter students all the way to the troublemakers, the ones who struggle in education the most. And if you think that sounds a little similar for gifted programs versus regular classes and how regular classes tend to get lesser, like lesser well-rated teachers versus the ones who are in AP or gifted programs, you are correct. I think that is very much a direct correlation. But I think what is really important about Assassination's Classroom's uh, portrayal of this privilege of students who perform well on exams is the fact that they, when they get separated, they are almost always set up to perform better because the teachers who teach them have inside knowledge of, you know, what the exams are going to be. So now these smart, these quote unquote smarter kids or really just better test takers, they 
are given a leg up from the very beginning of knowing which materials are the ones that are important to study for, which materials are likely going to be on the exam and which ones to focus on. And another thing that I uh, find probably the most riveting is in Karma specifically, who uh, who used to be essentially in one of the top classes and gets the privilege of the school because Karma is very intelligent and he naturally does pretty well on exams with very minimal studying. He learns fast and he does well. But the thing with Karma is he despises bullying. That's like, that's his whole thing is he genuinely despises bullying. To be fair, he bullies the bullies, um, (laughs) which, you know, not maybe quite the right decision to do, but it is Karma. But regardless, he does know how bad bullying is. It really, really bothers him. And what happened was he saw one of his classmates bullying people in essentially the lowest, one of the lower classrooms, Uh, not quite the assassination classroom team, but I think just like one of the lower, lower ones. And he got really mad and he beat up the kid that was bullying the other kid because he was like, that's not okay. You cannot do that. But what really shattered his, you know, viewpoint of the world was not only did the teacher refuse to reprimand the actual kid that was doing the bullying, but the other teacher, but the teacher reprimanded him too. And not just because he beat up a kid, but because he needs to act in line with the system and know that like people who just do well on tests are on his side and people who don't do well on his tests don't deserve any sort of defending from from these higher, from these upper class, literally an upper class situation. And that made karma really, really angry. And it harks back to me about an article I read from a Japanese citizen who later moved to Great Britain. And she made the observation of how uh, the bullying situation in Japan can be extraordinarily bad because the bullies, uh, so the bullies in the West are usually slash tend to be portrayed as the muscle heads, the ones who are good at sports, the handsome one, the strong one, the physically fit one. But that's not really how the hierarchy works in uh, Asian countries. And I can attest to that for like Chinese schools, at least. The popular kids in Asian countries are the smart ones, the ones that are considered nerds and the ones that are unpopular in the West. And she said the biggest issue with them is because they are always doing well in school and they are indeed very smart people. They genuinely never get repercussions. They grow up to become very successful because they are very intelligent and they continue to have that privilege all the way through. Versus how in the West, when she moved, uh, I think when she was a high schooler or something, when she moved out to the West, she realized that, you know, that's not quite the same journey for people in the West. In fact, it tends to be the bullies in school are the ones who ends up not going very far in the West, but the ones who get bullied in school are the ones that ultimately go far. And she says that's what makes bullying such a, just a terrible, tragic thing in Japan, that's a lot worse in ways that the people in the West can't imagine. And that's exactly what it made me think of with karma's situation and the system of the classrooms in the school is that these intelligent, these kids who learn faster, who do better in exam, they get that privilege and they show it in assassination classroom. And 
specifically, even with Koro Sensei putting so much dedication and, you know, attention to every single one of his students personally, they still ended up failing or not performing very well on one on the, like their first midterms because the school hid the fact that they were going to do tests in different sections from that class and tipped it off to the other teachers in the upper classes who taught them. And in obviously Koro Sensei was devastated by that fact because he wants these kids to succeed and very much these kids later prove that they absolutely could succeed um, just because they're a little slower on learning, just because they might be distracted of other things. Don't forget the class president, He the reason why his grades are low are, is not because he's not intelligent at all. It's because his family is poor and he has to work outside of school and it doesn't give him a lot of time to study compared to other kids. And so it's just like all these things in Assassination Classroom that I think just did a really good job of its portrayal of privilege and how it integrates into the school system and how it starts at a very young age. So that is my spiel on Assassination Classroom. I don't know if you two have seen it or not. <laughs> I read most of the manga. It's pretty spot on. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I, I obviously have seen some clips of it, so... But that sounds pretty accurate to me. I like the fact that you also highlighted the article because I feel like the link between, you know, the East and the West are definitely different. Um, I always wonder, especially when I watch like Korean dramas, for example, I'm so intrigued by how they're so focused on bullying in school. And it's different than what I might have seen, you know, in school or what we may have seen in school. Uh, and then they're so focused on it. And I always feel like it's a problem that it's not something that's easy to fix especially with social uh, situations and especially probably in Japan as well. Maybe if that kid is really smart, they might have gone to, you know, other classes or and maybe their background or status, uh, you know, their family might be really wealthy. So it's hard for you know teachers to maybe speak against that because they'll get more pressure from other outside sources as well. So it's also on the teachers and uh, teachers are a big influence in the class. So. But yeah, that's all I have uh, for that one as well. Mm -hmm. So did you like uh, the system of, or I guess, like, did you, do you agree with sort of my analysis of the privileged system in Assassination Classroom as someone who's read the manga, Agnes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't have any other words because you just put it so perfectly of how the system is so different from, let's say, like, uh, school systems in the West, but also detail it so perfectly with how education is the most vaunted thing and it forms like this invisible bubble that protects people who are like the smart ones and enables other students to pick on students who are let's say a little bit slower in learning potentially disabled or students who can't afford time to study or the resources and the money to do so yes exactly uh, yeah, so Assassination Classroom, I think, is a good portrayal of it. And also, I was a coward and I didn't watch the second season because I because the manga oh. kind of ripped my heart out. So I didn't want to watch it because I know I yeah, was going to react. We kind of just preserve the memories of Assassination Classroom. We don't talk about the ending or everything because all, that means all of our memories of it will go away. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to move on to my second pick, which I think is probably a little harder to tie to real life, you know, but that doesn't mean that it can't be discussed. Um, my second pick is actually Noragami. 
because there is a, you know, privilege system in regards to the gods and how they operate. And I think the, so in the second season is where it really, really hit me in regards to Noragami and sort of the privilege system for gods and goddesses. But essentially, the the scene that got me was when Yato cried because Kiori made a sh- mini shrine for him and he had always, always wanted a shrine. And uh, Ko- Kokuru Kofuku, she's the goddess of poverty. She explains the reason why he was so emotional is to receive a shrine means that people remember you and people love you and worship you. And it's a really big honor to get a shrine from the ordinary citizens. But the thing that struck me the most is that some of these gods and goddesses, they don't, I mean, a lot of them don't have a choice in regards to what their, you know, sort of focus slash major, if we're going to talk about college <laughs> classes, but like, you know, their choices. Because Kofuku being a goddess of poverty, she she can't do anything about it. That's that's exactly who she is, and that's what she can do. But Obviously, the normal civilians despise her because why would anyone like the goddess of poverty? You know, everyone would rather like the god of education. They would like to the god of fishing and stuff. And it's not really fair that she gets so despised and hated when it's something that's beyond her choice. And in a way, Yato perfectly uh, is emblematic of that because he's always he's doing his job he wants people to recognize that he's doing his job but no one wants him and no one will make a shrine for him and no one really acknowledges the hard work that it takes for the stuff he does and or I guess this is kind of a tie into real life in that case but it kind of reminds me of how inherently some of us look down on others for the jobs they undertake whether it's you know like one of the earliest things that people would say is like, oh, you don't want to be a trash man guy, do you? But the people who handle the trash, they're doing an incredibly important job to society as a whole. And yet they get labeled as this lower sort of people that you don't want to be, that you don't want to compare yourself to. And in a similar way, that reminds me of Kofuku's treatment as the goddess of poverty. You know, it's it's an important job that she represents. If she doesn't, her existence is a blatant reminder that society still needs to grow and become better because there are people living in poverty. But, you know, no one appreciates that. No one sees beyond of how important of a role that she plays. And all the other roles, um, even with Izanami, who is one of the most powerful goddesses in the entire universe and in, you know, Japanese mythology, she is pushed away because she represents death and death is important. Like death is what keeps the cycle going. And it reminds me of how I mean, this is changing nowadays, but it reminds me of how for a long time, Hades is always portrayed as the antagonist character in regards to any sort of Greek mythology, except Hades was never antagonistic. He's just doing his job. That's just what he's supposed to do. And I think Noragami does a really good job of showing just how lavished the positive, the gods who end up in positions of positive, you know, focus, whether it's fishing or whether it's education, they have shrines everywhere. They have all these followers. People want, you know, these, um, the other people want to work for them and, you know, cozy up to them. And then the other ones who get, you know, positioned into those less savory 
focuses, you know, people don't care about them. They brush them aside. They have absolutely zero respect for them as gods or goddesses, even though their entire purpose in the balance of the world and the system is so ridiculously important. And you can see how much it pains these characters on the fact that they don't get that sort of respect that people don't appreciate them for what they do and in a way even turns it into self-loathing on themselves wondering you know why they were ever born into this position and why she has to be the goddess of poverty or Yato's case you know the god of violence or anything like that and so I think and so I think with how well it integrated it into the characters and is a driving force slash motivation to a lot of them and how it crafts the entire world and the system of the gods and goddesses and of Noragami. I think Noragami does a really good job of that. And I'm able to relate to that, to a lot of the stuff that, you know, a lot of the jobs and careers that happen around us that we tend to overlook on their importance. So that is my take on Noragami's privilege. What did you guys think of it? Agnes, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a fascinating outlook. I didn't really think of that originally when I was watching Noragami. I was more amazed by, ooh, look, Bones animation looks <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> um, but it's such a poignant reminder that especially as people living in a, a well-to-do society, that there are still people who are treated lesser because they have to work jobs that are considered like undesirable or part of a caste system. And it's horrible to see how they're mistreated and that societies cast them away even though they're so important. Like you mentioned, trash jobs. Um, I'm also thinking like people who do construction work and mm, stuff like that too. Yeah. Um, and it's really sad even to see peers because I, you know, I attended college. I had I had the privilege of attending an education. But to see a lot of my own peers kind of shirk away from that and not give a crap about people who are you know, doing all these service jobs for us because they're too busy trying to be successful. They're too busy trying to look better, you know, things like that. And it's honestly really sad. It really shows how inhumane we really are with how we set up this kind of like structure, this hierarchy, like how Noragami did. We put a pedestal on people who are not really that important. And we don't care about the people who are important and who do all the grunt work that nobody wants to do. Okay, so I'm not just pulling stuff out of my butt then when I'm saying no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's a great thing because now that I sit back and I think about it, I think the one scene that would that st- still stands out to me is the gods meeting in season mm, two yeah. of Origami. Mm, yeah, and there's such a huge dichotomy of the classes that are shown in the gods meeting. The first one obviously are the five gods of fortune. You know, Asian culture is huge on money. Money means success. Money therefore means power. Um, and so all the gods of money and fortune are put way, 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 way at the top. Everybody reveres them. They get a lot of status. They have like a lot of luxury that they can afford as gods. And then you have older gods that still have quite a reputation that still live on like Bishamotin, even though she's a god of war and nobody honors a god of war anymore. Unless maybe you are a country that is, um, uh, trying to protect itself or you want like some sort of fortune with war okay fine but even then she still has enough reputation from so many years before that she is still able to be recognized versus Yato versus Okufuku they are the quote-unquote bad ones therefore they don't have a seat or a place at any of the gods meeting which is incredibly unfair and also really shows that humans themselves emulate that by putting it into a god's position as well 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a saying that the myths are, you know, the myths of these things, they're modeled after human behavior because it's the humans who, who created these mythologies. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's why Noragami is such a great analogy for that, even though humans at the time would have never admitted it or realized that when, you know, they're praying to these de- deities of old because they believe these deities of old can grant their wish. But the reality is, is like you're just praying to an iconic figure when what you're doing is basically exactly that. Mm-hmm, exactly. And Isabel, how did you feel, I guess, about my interpretation overall of like the Nor- Norogami's like god system? Yeah, I mostly agree with it. Norogami didn't come up when I was thinking of this topic, so I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't think of putting that in perspective with between all the gods. And I mostly agree with what you guys said about the gods and having you know different layers. I always thought of when I was watching this show, I was always cheering on Yato because to me, he seemed like an underdog compared to everyone else. Yeah, so, yeah. So you, know, you just want to see him to win. And I really respect him and the fact that he, as a god, maybe he just has this dis- different perspective, but he actually, it seems like he doesn't think anyone is really good or bad, even though you know some of the gods kind of shun him or don't really talk to him or don't care, really. Um, so he just kind of takes on whatever he feels confident in and um you know when he is accused of something that he didn't do he's like no i didn't do that you know he know he's loyal and he's truthful to himself and he's also capable of moving on from the past right so in the past he killed a lot of people right and that isn't really a good thing but i don't think he thinks of it as a bad thing for himself it's kind of a point of him you know this is what he was known for in the past and that's why he was a strong god but um, you know, since there's no need for that now, it's time for him to change. And now he kind of has, has to start from the bottom. And But, you know, he has followers and this is his new adventure. And so he kind of accepts it and moves on. So I think it's a great example of like how, you know, someone is able to change throughout the series, really. Yay! Well, I'm glad that I picked two that the two of you guys agree with. And I'm able to put a spotlight and bring a new perspective. That's always very exciting. <laughs> um, but in that case, those are my two that I picked. So Isabel, it is your turn. Which are two anime that you would like to discuss in the topic of privileged portrayal in anime? Yeah, the first one I want to talk about is pretty obvious. Um, it's uh, from the Millionaire Detective Unlimited balance. Oh! <laughs> Classic. Classic. Yeah. The Millionaire Detective Balance Unlimited. I think Daisuke Kambe is hilarious. He's the billionaire uh, in this show, obviously, and his family has so much money to throw around. Um, so as funny as it is, I think his, you know, him flaunting his privilege and money uh, is so funny. He thinks, I mean, to be honest, in most of the cases he solved, money solves everything. Um it's funny because it solves every little thing that he goes through kind of like in trying to solve the case but his own family situation so money technically can solve things but it can't solve his own problem right and that's the reason why he's in this police force to figure out what the heck happened to his family why can it why can it not be solved with money um why can't it fix itself (laughs) oh shoot (laughs) but yeah uh things that you know when he like blows missiles out of nowhere and doesn't care for the people around uh that might get hurt i think haru brings a great perspective like hey 
Daisuke, you can't do this. Um, and usually people would learn from that, I feel like, if it was a different series or a movie, but Daisuke literally just kind of ignores him and be like, no, I'm still just going to do it my way because I have this money and because I know I can do it. <laughs> He's a little and bit how strong. does that make you feel, Isabel, as someone who's definitely not as rich as him? <laughs> I'm not as rich as him. Yeah, I can't do any of that, but... Yeah, I I would be on Haru's side. I would continue to pester him. Like, please don't do that. You're putting people in danger. We can't do that. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think it's funny? I think it mostly is for the comedic purposes. But would you be on Haru's side as well? Just kind of nagging him until he can stop because he has, you know, Daisuke has to learn, right? I think it's nice to have because I talked about Kena originally at the beginning of this podcast and then you talk about Daisuke and how they come from positions of power that they and they basically do whatever they mm -hmm. want but the beauty of the millionaire detective is that because it's a, a buddy cop system Haru is there to basically ground Kanbei and to look further into his family's tragedy and figure out people that he can forgive people he can't forgive and figure out a way to enact justice as a true cop was versus Kena is very like very free and that there's nobody to restrain her or to tell her otherwise so i think even though Kambe's whole thing of like blowing up things with missiles you know driving antique cars recklessly through the streets and not care about how much money it costs because he can just sign a check is comedic relief there's also an emotional repercussion that he has to face later on in the series that paints him i think is more likable mm -hmm. as a character with privilege because mm -hmm. usually when we watch anime or even like very stereotypical anime privilege comes in the form of like the oh ho, 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 oh joseph yeah her, oh, yeah her mansion and every time she does stupid stuff like buying extraordinarily expensive things or you know looking down on the poor and saying like, well, I have better money and status. We get irritated. But with Kambe, we actually laugh more than get irritated. Mm -hmm. I really like the observation you made, Isabel, which it sounds obvious, especially since all of us have seen it. But when you said like, he has all this money and money can fix everything except what's happening in his own family, I'm like, Oh, if that's not accurate, though, because I think that I mean, how? Yeah. Yeah. How many like celebrities and political figures do we have in this world who still seek out therapy because money can't solve their problems, but they don't know what to do with themselves? Yeah, I uh, actually one of my uh, one of my our fam our old family friends, she temporarily was house sitting uh, for an extraordinarily rich family and just to take care of the house and stuff like that because she lives down on um she lives on the west coast so you know there's a lot of rich people there but essentially she uh she told us that uh, she eventually stopped house sitting and the reason why was when the couple was gone uh with their business making money you know being rich and richer their son committed suicide and so, like, that right there is just an example of it doesn't matter that they could own so many houses. It doesn't matter how successful their business is and they could probably just write a check for whatever they want. It's um, they lost their son. And that's not something that money could have fixed, per se. So I think, like, your observation of how how that like kicks into Kambe's uh Kambe's character development but also the plot it's it gives me shivers in the best way <laughs> and it's not something I thought about per se so I find that to be extraordinarily exciting <laughs> yeah I agree 
uh, it's hard to note not notice it or you wouldn't notice it until the end obviously because there's so many plot points in the show that progresses as it moves on and Kame also just learning how to interact um, with others and reading the criminals really that's what he learns from Haru so I appreciate the fact that he's able to kind of put his privilege away he doesn't really need money to solve some of these crimes really or um, get get into the minds of uh, the criminal you know if they do want for example if the criminal was going to try, try to basically threaten to kill somebody but Daisuke basically says oh I don't think he's gonna kill that person and Haru's kind of stunned like how, how did you know that and Daisuke doesn't tell him but he most likely learned it from him from Haru himself so oh yeah that was really cute too yeah <laughs> good intuition yeah. moment yeah very good intuition moment that was such a fun anime really <laughs> just fun. remembering it yeah that was really fun um all right so if that's your first pick uh what is your second pick that you want to say <laughs> yeah, the second one i feel like is not so obvious but i think i'd like to point it out in komi can't communicate uh i feel that komi does have pretty privilege um even though the basis of komi can't communicate is the fact that komi has social anxiety and it shows that, you know, even if you're pretty and liked by everyone in your classroom, you can still have these problems, right? You can still be afraid to talk to others or are just not used to it, even though you want to talk to others. But for me, I think that if Komi wasn't as pretty, she would have a harder time making friends. And she wouldn't have as many people kind of gloating over her and just being like, oh, we can, you know, it's okay. Komi understands this or this is what Komi really means and that she's okay with it. It's a pretty privilege. Mm -hmm. No, it's absolutely privilege. I mean, we talk about how like in the West, you know, being pretty, being strong, it's like in the eye of the beholder, the appearance is what gives you the first impression and makes you more liable of giving sympathy to them. And for like Komi's case, she's beautiful and supposedly pretty smart enough to do well in her classes that her classmates give her the pass of being socially anxious. But when we look at other characters from other series and other pieces where they don't look as pretty, they're not beautiful, or they don't have any appearance outstanding qualities they're easier to be shunned and not be forgiven by people especially if they don't if they have social anxiety issues so i can definitely see that for sure yeah that is a really good observation like they like all the other classmates would not have reacted to her of being socially awkward as oh she's so cute she just needs some help instead they might label her as the weirdo essentially yeah like how many how, I mean, we talk there's like crime murder uh, documentaries and stuff like that where the creepy ones the ones that have social anxiety are also supposedly the ones that look the worst and are bullied the worst as the as the fact puts it you know they don't look appealing they they might they have don't follow the difficult. beauty standards per they se. don't follow the beauty standards yeah yeah, and I feel like it's hard to kind of undo in person because I think maybe we're biologically more attracted to a person, obviously, who looks uh, who looks more beautiful. And so you kind of give them the passes by making these assumptions in your head, like if you're trying mm -hmm. to hire somebody for a job or something like that. So yes, oh, absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, you know, attaching themselves with their appearance, they might be able to speak really well too. So you know, it's not to do undermine them or anything so some people might use that to their advantage or maybe it might not work to their advantage because maybe they're really beautiful but they can't um 
you know, they can't do the job well, or they haven't learned enough to be able to do it. So it's kind of, and then it's hard to disassociate that fact that, oh, this person's really beautiful. They should be able to do this, but they don't. So it's kind of weird. And I think it's funny because her classmates don't realize that she has this social anxiety. Um, they kind of, they no, just, they don't. Yeah, that's like the whole basis of it at the beginning. Yeah, it's just like a big black hole. Like, oh, oh we're just going to toss that out. And uh, yeah, we don't really talk about it or they just don't notice them. Whereas, you know, when I'm watching, I'm like, come on, guys, can't, can't you notice this? Comey's having some trouble. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, but I feel that even if she, you know, was a different type of character, Comey would still be able to make friends with Tadano. I feel like Tadano is a good example too. He's kind of, he, um, the, just the fact that he's interacting with Komi, other classmates also kind of just, uh, kind of want to put him down too. Just because, because he's mm-hmm. not good enough because he's not drawn in a handsome way. Yeah. He doesn't mm-hmm. seem like, Oh, I see what you're saying now. Yeah. Male. Yeah. Yeah. So like other people are kind of jealous of him. Like, why are you interacting with Komi? She's really pretty and you're not pretty. Why are you with her all the time? Like you guys, you guys oh can't God, be friends. The- so, you know, the anime gag. Mm-hmm. I hate that trope so much. I mean, granted, I do like Tadano as a character. He's a very likable protagonist, so, you know, makes it easier to watch the anime for sure. But I, like, that's an angle I didn't consider because it's just like, oh, I'm jealous because someone else is interacting with someone with the popular person. But it's like, why is it him specifically? I bet, yeah, like, I bet if he was, like, a handsome anime boy there wouldn't be that big of a jealousy it'd be like oh they fit you know mm-hmm. they fit each other instead of Ugh. yeah disgusting <laughs> Agnes. Oh. disgusting I, uh, I i like to judge people based on how they are as a person regardless of how they look so the fact that there are still people that do that just kind of irritates me so much. Oh yeah, the, it irritates me pretty the much. The pretty privilege is very real because I my so my professor back in college, his whole research and like his books and what made him so you know um, what made him so big in the economics world was he did a research on the pretty gene and how that benefits them and gives people privilege about it. They get higher raises, they get, you know, higher pay, they tend to get hired more quickly, they get promoted quicker, you know, on top of the whole like relationship side of things as well. And but it's also interesting cuz I I have seen the flip side of things specifically towards women, not so much towards men. Uh one of the one of my internships a long while back, my roommate who they assigned to us she um she was a very gorgeous woman in um in contemporary in contemporary like business uh, sorry not business in contemporary beauty standards she's very very beautiful and on one hand yes i do see the privilege happening cuz she gets all the better projects she um the bosses all the male bosses all strangely really favor her and like her and you know they want to hire her and like they send her out on business trips that are a lot fancier than the other interns get. But on the other hand, I unfortunately witnessed two instances of guys who got drunk and basically told her to her face that the only reason why she has an internship and why she has come as far as she did is because she's pretty and there's nothing else going for her, which was absolutely heartbreaking for me to see because I know she works hard. I know she cares about her job and she wants to do her best. And the fact that people would just overwrite 
all the stuff that really makes her who she is because she's pretty. And yes, she does get that privilege, does not allow them to sort of just overwrite what else she does have. Like it's it's genuinely insane the fact that I was able to witness this. And I think the pretty privilege is sort of a double edged sword for women mm-hmm. in particular. So yeah. That's also very disgusting of her coworkers to say that to her, especially when drunk too. Yes, I I know. Yeah, oh, we won't we won't talk about that. But well, I mean, I did talk <laughs> about it, but we won't talk further on it. But yes, it's a it's definitely a thing, and I'm really happy you ended up picking this Isabel because I don't think anyone would have thought about it, but you did, and you know, bravo to you. So <laughs> it works perfectly. It's a great uh, point of discussion. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, that's all I have to say. I feel like we picked some good anime. Alrighty. So in that case, uh, this is an extremely coherent and cohesive conversation we had. Uh, Not a lot of wandering around, but that just leaves us good time to continue Agnes's French disaster adventure because, you know, we just want her home and she just can't seem to get her way home. So Agnes, what happened? (laughs) Yeah, so... The last time we talked about, I basically walked scot-free out of the Louvre Museum. Nobody's there to accost me. Nobody's there to demand me to give back the bracelet or whatever. It's afternoon. There are pedestrians going home from work. It seems like nothing has happened. They don't even blink as they walk by me. I take a look around. There's maybe like one or two security guards that are posted in front of like the big pyramid at the Louvre. Where if you go downstairs, there's the underground shopping mall. They don't seem to know that I was the one who stole their jewel or whatever. They just don't even look at me. And I'm like, interesting. Is this what privilege feels oh. like? No, <laughs> that's, a horrible, that's a horrible segue at the end of our podcast. Um, but anyway, I decide like I feel like a criminal. I have privilege and I just walk home with no regrets and nothing. And everything is pretty quiet for the next couple of days. But as you may know, Things do get a bit hairy, and while I'm working at the pho sweatshop, there is a somebody that stops by the shop, and they hand me a very crisp, handcrafted letter with a wax seal on it, and I'm like, "What's this?" And they they tell me like it's a letter from my mistress, and I'm like, "What what letter? <laughs> Who's a mistress, huh?" And I break the wax seal, even though I'm really scared because I'm just like, this looks very royal. I break it, and it turns out it's a handcrafted message from Isabella the She-Wolf. And at this point, I'm like waving this letter in front of my mom. I'm like, do you see this letter? Am I not hallucinating? She's like, yes, yes, I see the letter. I don't give a shit. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mom. (laughs) Thanks, mom. So I decide to go in a very secluded corner. I open up the letter, and it's a formal invitation written in a very beautiful script of French, inviting me to have tea with her. And I'm like, all right, so this outdated royal, even though she's from the modern times, has somehow not contacted me through like SMS or text or whatever, even though she doesn't know my phone number, but decides to send a messenger to give me a handcrafted letter. Oh, okay. She's okay. still well, well, learning, Agnes. <laughs> I know. She's, she's probably an old grandma at this point. She's like, how do you do things like an old boomer? But yeah, I, I take it with a grain of salt. I said, okay, I'm just going to indulge her. She is a queen. And I can't say no to a queen because otherwise I'm going to have my head, my, my head get chopped off. So I decide to meet her at a now renovated museum. Um, it is a, it's a mini palace. That is in French. I think it's the Palais Royal or something like that. And inside has a very 
beautiful cafe um, where it's very modernized, but it overlooks a small courtyard that has a massive pavilion in front of it. It's like the uh, the courtyard also have like little lakes and things like that and fountains. It's really picturesque to actually sit there. And I eventually make my way to a VIP room that has been reserved upstairs in the second balcony where she is at. And it's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. She invites me to tea. And knowing me, because I love tea as well, I decide to also buy tea myself. I get a Darlington tea while I'm there. Pretty basic of me, but I'm, I'm okay with this. And she also gets a very nice handcrafted royal tea set. Apparently, she is friends with the curator of this museum and therefore gets the best teas in the world here and i'm like oh okay wow. sure all right um it's a very wonderful experience it's very warm it's very comfy she just makes a lot of small talk with me and i'm usually not a fan of small talk but she has a very magnetic personality that i can't help but just continue the conversation with her even though i'm usually not inclined to um and there, of course, there's also butlers who are there at the cafe, which is really nice. One of them actually plucked a flower from the garden of the Palais Royal and placed it in my hair. And suddenly I feel very girlish. And I'm like, this is not very normal. But why not revel in the enjoyment? I know. I do. Yes, I do have an inner maiden in me. Thank you very much. The amount of shoujo manga that I read as a teenager should be very exemplary. Of what that, a cindere. <laughs> yes, I am a cindere. We've already established this on this podcast. Moving on. As he puts a hair, the flower in my hair and I'm enjoying my time with the queen of France and her entourage, suddenly uh, there's food that comes in. There's a lot of different pastries and my eyes are glittering. My mouth is drooling and I'm so happy to be eating so many eclairs in one sitting without having to spend a dime <laughs> on it, right? <laughs> there's so many of my favorite pastries out in front of me. But as I'm mid bite through like uh, a tiramisu all of a sudden there is a loud screech that comes from outside there is a, a like the sound of rubber on asphalt and it turns and then it suddenly there's a massive rumble in the building as something just slams into the side of the palais royal luckily nobody's injured but it's a huge commotion there are a lot of the customers from the cafe that are running out and as we are peering out of the window and trying not to fall from the second balcony um where we are currently having tea at there is something someone or something that steps out of the car and Isabella France looks very, very fucking pissed. Like, who dares interrupt your tea time? Who dares, you know, disrupt the sanctuary of peace that is here at this cafe? She basically storms down the stairs to confront whoever had crashed the car, this car, into the cafe and endangered the lives of herself and her entourage and the other people there and me. And just before she's about to throw hands, basically, right, um, the driver is still wearing sunglasses and he suddenly says, it's you who has come. She's confused. I'm very confused. It's very cryptic altogether. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, squinting. I'm like, I know that voice from somewhere. And that's where we'll end today because, you know, I love cliffhangers. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, well, F you. Oh, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> 
<laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us today. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of privilege in anime, specifically for their stories, as well as, you know, Agnes's continuing uh, adventure in France. But most importantly, I hope you will be with us next time. So bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.